Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 4 of Cosmic Controversy. Today's guest is Travis Metcalf, a senior research scientist at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Metcalf has done some of the most fascinating comparative observations of solar-type stars to date, primarily using NASA's now-defunct Kepler Space Telescope. At present, Metcalf is currently leading observations of the brightest stars in the sky using NASA's new space telescope, TESS, for transiting exoplanet survey satellite. Today, Travis Metcalf joins us from the Boulder area. Travis, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Glad to be here, Bruce. Um, what puzzles you most about our own star, the Sun? I think the thing that puzzles me most about the Sun is uh, its life story. Uh, how did we get here? And, um, you know, if you if you look at the sun right now, we have, it's like a single snapshot in the life story of a star like the sun. And if we want to understand the whole story, piece it together, we need to look at other stars that are younger or older to try to understand where the sun came from and, and where it's going. And uh, how do we even know the sun's age? Can you, can you explain that? Well, the, the simple way to know the sun's age is that we can actually date rocks that fall from the sky. So meteorites uh, that were formed at the same time as the sun and all the planets in the solar sy system uh, have radioactive materials inside them. So they are gradually decaying one element into another, and we can use the known half-lives of those elements to date those rocks. And um, when you do that, you find that meteorites have been around for about four and a half billion years. Uh, and it turns out that that agrees uh, very well with what we think um, the age of the sun is from other independent methods. Um, so for example, uh, the sun produces sound waves from the boiling motions near the surface that propagate down into the center of the sun, um, kind of like seismic waves on the earth. So you can learn about the insides and those seismic waves, uh, tell us that the sun is about four and a half billion years. So we have sort of independent physical, um, confirmation of that age from direct measurements of meteorites, but also, uh, a validation of our theories about what the sun is doing. Uh, from helioseismology, they call it. And um, could you uh, explain to the listeners, we know that the, the sun will probably continue for, we estimate that the sun will probably continue uh, burning hydrogen to helium on the main sequence, as we call it, uh, for another 5 billion years. Um, but uh, could you explain how we calculate that? Was physicist Hans Bethe the first to make that calculation? Or... 
Yeah, this this idea that nuclear fusion is the source of energy for the sun and other stars like the sun uh, was actually first suggested in the 1920s by British astronomer Arthur Eddington. But Hans Bethe was the first uh, in the 1930s to work out the details of exactly how that happens from a nuclear physics perspective. Uh, and in fact, for that work, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in the 1960s. Um, but basically, uh, the sun is gradually turning uh, hydrogen into helium and releasing energy in the process. Um, and that's what, what keeps it stable over long periods of time. But in order for those nuclear reactions to, to take place, you need material that is hot enough and dense enough. Uh, the hydrogen has to be hot enough and dense enough. And that only those conditions are only um, available in the deep core of the sun, the inner, you know, tens of percent of its mass. Uh, so you can basically calculate how long will it take for all of the hydrogen in that region of the sun to be converted into, into helium, and it takes about 10 billion years. So the sun's about halfway through it its stable lifetime. And we think the best date, uh, the current best date for the age of the solar, of the protosolar disk that from which the planets formed is what? 4.56 billion years? Uh, between four and a half and, and five billion years. Okay. Four and a half and five billion. Okay. Uh, so there's not, you, you can't extrap extrapolate out, uh, with the, with the, any, with any more precision, I had seen some figures like 4.54, 4 4.55, 4.56. Uh, yeah, it's it's very close to four, to four and a half. I mean, it depends on. Normally, we we count the age of the sun from the moment that it started nuclear fusion in its core to the present. Uh, but there's a period of time before that where. There is something bright and hot in the middle of the solar system while the planets are forming that hasn't actually initiated nuclear fusion yet. Uh, and that process takes some tens of millions of years as well. And before Eddington, you said in the 20s, he was the first to propose that the sun was undergoing thermonuclear fusion. Um, mm -hmm. Before that, astronomers really didn't understand what powered the sun or no, I mean, the, the earlier idea was that it was just gravitational contraction, that you're losing gravitational potential energy over time as the, as the star contracts. Um, and we actually still use some of the, so they knew about the main sequence, this sort of stable region of uh, relationship between temperature and luminosity of a star um, for stars of different masses. Uh, that's what we know now. But what they thought was that stars started very luminous and hot and just worked their way down that sequence uh, to becoming cooler and less luminous. Uh, and we still use um, these shorthands for stars, very massive stars that are very luminous on the upper part of that diagram. We refer to as early type stars. And at the bottom, we refer to them as late type stars. And that's entirely left over from this uh, mistaken notion of how stars evolve. Right. And that, and that has been proven to be that early notion has proven to be wrong. Uh, yeah. There's basically just not enough energy <laughs> okay. to keep a star stable for, for long enough. Uh, and where do you think, that um, I was having this discussion with someone yesterday, not for a podcast, but uh, someone I was interviewing 
for some for something else. Um, do you have any idea where the the sun might have formed within the galaxy? Because uh, did it form closer into the center of the of the galaxy and then kind of migrate out to where to where we are now between these two spiral arms? Or uh, do we have any clue as to which uh, group of molecular clouds the sun for, from which the sun formed? Well, it's it's a little bit of a difficult uh, question to answer because because the galaxy um, is a very fluid kind of place. Stars are moving into and out of the solar neighborhood all the time. And what we know is that the current position of the sun is about a third or a halfway away from the center of the galaxy towards the edge in this spiral structure and that it takes about a quarter billion years to go around the center in its pretty circular orbit. Um, it's oscillating around this circle, up and down, uh, in and out a little bit. But for the most part, um, the neighborhood of the sun right now is the neighborhood that it was formed in, but that neighborhood has been orbiting around the center of the galaxy some 20 times since the sun was born. Uh, That's incredible. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, well, let's uh, change, uh, switch gears a bit. You said uh, a couple of years ago, I did a story um, on on this. You and colleagues made the determination that the sun, our sun, was going into a phase that you used that you loosely described as middle age. Uh, could you talk about that? Yeah, uh, we we now kind of refer to it as as like a, a magnetic midlife crisis, uh, <laughs> okay. and the, the first evidence of this came from NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, where for the first time we were able to very precisely measure the ages of some stars that were older than the sun. Um, the traditional method of knowing the age of a star uh, other than the sun is uh, pretty much restricted to fairly young stars that still exist in the clusters that they were formed in. Um, right, yep. And you can use the properties of the, of the whole ensemble of stars in a cluster to infer the age. Um, but older stars, uh, that doesn't work because those clusters of stars that form gradually evaporate and, and lose their association. So you just sort of stream stars out and mix them all into the galaxy and uh, you don't see a cluster after a certain number of years. And, and the sun's in that situation now. We, we don't know um, what other stars this, the sun formed with at this, at this time. Um, but there has been work there on are the a couple of siblings that we know about, but we don't know all of the stars that formed in the, in the sun's cluster. It's gone. Right, but we have, uh, but we have uh, detected. There has been work on trying to detect our siblings, right? Our, our absolutely, our, yeah. Um, you can look for stars that have the same composition and the same sort of similar space motions. There should be an imprint uh, on the space motions, and so yeah, there are efforts to 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 find all of our siblings, and and. Uh, that's progressing quite well with the European satellite called Gaia that's measuring the positions and motions of billions of stars in our galaxy. Do you happen to recall of the two that they think have been, you know, perhaps definitively identified as a, as a birth sibling of our sun? Uh, do you know where they are on the sky or how far they are from the sun at this point? I mean, they're, uh, as far as I understand, they're relatively 
near in the solar neighborhoods still, right? Um, it's just um, they're not all collected in one place the way that young star clusters are uh, easily identifiable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, even if we were in a cluster, it would be kind of hard to to uh, to identify it, maybe because because if you're if you're in the middle of it, it's kind of hard to see. Right. Back to the the sun's midlife crisis. Uh, you you mentioned that uh, in one of your papers that you know sun-like stars increase with luminosity over billions of years, um, but then after a certain point in their evolution, they become less active, uh, more and more stable. Uh, does that uh, help? Uh, is that um, astrobiologically uh, more advantageous than to have a, a, a sun that is less active than more active? Well, absolutely. Um, we, we've kind of understood parts of this story for, for quite a long time that um, it, it's been known by studying stars of various ages that um, through most of a star's life, uh, stars like the sun, um, the rotation rate and the amount of magnetic activity that a star has are closely coupled over the lifetime. And the two kind of feed off of each other. The, uh, the rotation builds the magnetic field by uh, providing a source of shear that winds up the, the, the plasma. Um, and the, uh, the magnetic field, especially the largest scale magnetic field, like the, the dipole magnetic field that you can see during a solar eclipse, um, interacts with the wind, the charged particles that are streaming off the sun, uh, to actually slow down the rotation over time. You, you're gradually losing angular momentum um, through the drag of this magnetic field on the wind. Uh, and so you basically slow the rotation over time and decrease the amount of magnetic activity over time. And for sure, during the second half of stars' lives, um, that magnetic activity and rotation both um, kind of level off. You get a constant amount of magnetic activity and a relatively uh, constant rotation rate. Uh, and those two properties kind of decouple at some point in a star's life. And we, from what we can see, that happens somewhere around the age of the sun, some, somewhere in the middle of a star's life. So what do you think is the significance of that? Well, basically, um, I mean, we still are experiencing with the sun uh, some some issues with uh, technological societies, right? The sun still has enough magnetism uh, that it occasionally throws off these uh, giant, has these giant flares and throws off material and charged particles and radiation in our direction. And uh, that's a problem if you want to have orbiting satellites like GPS, uh, or a wide range of technologies, astronauts in space, it, it creates problems for a technological society. Uh, in younger stars, those eruptions are much, much more energetic and powerful. Uh, and so uh, for life to get started around a magnetically active star, it's a challenging environment. And so coming to this uh, midlife phase where things kind of calm down is kind of the sweet spot for when life can really get a foothold. Right. Okay, so um, does the fact that, this, that the sun and our solar disk, uh, from which the, our planets form like Earth, uh, have an, has a higher uh, iron content than other uh, 
solar type stars, or does it? Does, am I wrong in that uh, uh, that the that the sun actually does have a higher iron content in its core than other solar type stars? No, that's true. Um, compared to the average sun-like star in the galaxy, the sun is about four times more more uh, metal rich. Has more elements that are heavier than hydrogen and helium. And could you uh, could would you draw a, conc- uh, a, a corollary between the fact that our sun has a higher iron con- content, and we're here to talk about all this? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, in the sun formed out of the same material that that all the planets did. And so if you don't have those those heavier elements, silicon to make rocks, uh, carbon to make people, uh, then you know you can't make life. Uh, so, uh, so you have to have a certain amount of, of metal, uh, heavier elements in a, a star and the surrounding disk of material in order to have any chance of forming rocky planets, for sure. And uh, the popular mantra among Many researchers, a particular astrobiologist, is that the sun is just one of many G-dwarf yellow stars, nothing special. Uh, is that an overstatement? And then could you kind of give the listeners an idea what, what is meant by a G-dwarf star? So a, a G-dwarf star uh, like the sun, is just it just refers to a range of surface temperatures, right? So stars are made with uh, different sizes and, and masses. Uh, more massive stars are hotter and less massive stars are cooler. Um, so nature seems to have an easier time building small things than big things. And so it turns out that like three quarters of all the stars in the sky are tiny red dwarfs. Uh, and G type stars are relatively rare, maybe only 1% of all the, the available stars. So, so our sun is literally awash in a sea of red dwarfs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that time and again, but that is true. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what have we we learned about the sun's magnetic cycles? And it seems that the sun of late has been a bit uh, quiescent, uh, that, uh, that there's some people who say, well, we may actually be entering into a maunder minimum. Does this have any correlation between what you were saying about the sun being in middle age? It, uh, they're really two separate issues because uh, the, the, the magnetic cycle of the sun has been known for like 400 years. I mean, ever since people started pointing telescopes to the sun uh, with a filter, I hope, to see the sunspots and how they change over time. And what people quickly recognized um, hundreds of years ago is that the number of sunspots uh, and, and sunspots are magnetic features on the surface of the sun Uh, increase and decrease with a very regular 11-year cycle. Um, It turns, if you look closer and measure the the polarity of the magnetic field, that cycle is actually a 22-year cycle uh, where the the polarity of the field flips between uh, between cycles, between 11-year sunspot cycles. Um, So there have been periods over the last uh, hundreds hundreds of years where that s- sunspot cycle apparently disappears for 40, 50, 60 years at a time. We're certainly not in that situation now. We've had regular s- sunspot cycles uh, for as long as uh, 
people have been looking closely with with satellites. Um, we did recently go through um, a a minimum in that cycle, and we're just uh, now starting to see the emergence of the next of the next cycle, where the sun is gradually becoming more active, showing more sunspots. Uh, but these cycles are are weaker than the most the the, re the recent ones. The cycles have become uh, so the sun has become less magnetically active over the last fifty years, say, on average. So it's I don't think it's going into uh, a grand minimum, a maunder minimum, if you want to call it that. Um, but it is um, there are other unidentified mechanisms that that modulate the strength of the cycles over time. And we're still working out uh, what causes those things so that we could predict them in the future. For life like ours, uh, I, I believe that you once said that uh, that actually K-type stars, orange dwarfs were, were probably better suited for the evolution of complex or intelligent life than our own. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, this idea has been around for a while that um, you, th there's sort of two different things that there are co competing effects uh, that help determine the suitability of a given star for developing complex life. Um, so one of those is, uh, is the mass of the star. So K-type stars are less massive, uh, like less less massive and more common than, than G-type stars like the sun. So there may be 10 times more K-dwarfs. K there are like 100 times more red dwarfs, right? Um, so there are more opportunities for, for creating life. And then these lower mass stars also live longer. So, um, so K-type stars live for 20 billion years or 30 billion years, so two or three times longer than the sun. And red dwarfs, uh, for all intents and purposes, live forever, right? The, the universe is only 13 billion years old at this point. And so red dwarfs that were born at the beginning of the universe are still uh, burning stably on the main sequence. So you need a star that lasts for long enough that life can get a foothold. Uh, but <clears throat> the, the other property is the magnetism. And it turns out that these less massive stars are also, so in an evolutionarily in an evolutionary sense, at a given age, they are they are more magnetically active still, right? So it takes longer for that process of decaying the magnetic field to the stable regime. Uh, it takes longer for that to play out in less massive stars. So somewhere in between, there's there's kind of a sweet spot where you want a, a star to live long enough, but you don't want it to be so magnetically active that it just blasts its planet with charged particles and radiation. So, so it really so is. So K-stars are kind of the, the sweet spot. The sweet think. spot, the Goldilocks uh, zone for stars, not just planets. So what have we learned from NASA's uh, Parker probe, the solar probe? So the NASA's Parker probe uh, will is, for the first time, uh, probing the properties of the solar wind that I talked about before this uh, charged particles that are streaming off the surface of the sun, uh, you know, we have a fairly comprehensive picture of 
what that is doing out at the position of the Earth. But um, Parker, for the first time, is going in towards the sun, much closer than the orbit of Mercury, to see what the properties of that wind are like much, much, much closer. Um, and so measuring the properties of the magnetic field and the charged particles. So it's, it's really just trying to give us a, a better understanding of the, of the physical processes that are, that are underlying these, the storms and, and eruptions that can create havoc on Earth. Have we learned anything thus far? Yeah, uh, the properties of that solar wind are very different inside the Earth's orbit, uh, much closer to the sun than they are out here. Um, it's kind of a gentle breeze out here, and uh, closer to the sun, it's quite turbulent and volatile. Um, so the magnetic field changes direction quite abruptly. Um, the the flux of uh, charged particles is different than we thought it was going to be. Uh, and it's only just started. I mean, it's um, gradually getting closer and closer to the sun um, over the next few years. Uh, and so we're getting a more comprehensive picture at different distances as time goes on. And what kind of, if you were uh, a project lead on a, on a, on a uh, solar type uh, uh, satellite, the next, uh, the next project, uh, what kind of probe do we need next for the sun? Is, should it be another type orbiter? Should it be a probe? Should it be, do we need to see the sun from the pole at the poles? I don't think we've actually done that. Have we? So, uh, the European space agency actually does have a, a probe right now, or either just launched or is about to launch called solar orbiter. Uh, and it will do just that. It will eventually get up out of the plane of the ecliptic, um, to higher viewing angles and and see the see the, the the sun from a different perspective from up above and down below, uh, and um, you know as we've seen from the the recent Jupiter probe that does something similar Juno, right goes over the poles of Jupiter and discovered all kinds of crazy turbulence at the poles that we had no idea was there, um, and that tells us something fundamental about the dynamics of of Jupiter and what's going on inside. Uh, and so there's every reason to expect that we'll find similar surprises uh, when we look at the sun that way with ESA's uh, solar orbiter mission. In terms of future missions, I would think um, NASA has done a mission before called the Stereo mission, where there was a um, one spacecraft ahead of the Earth in, in its orbit and one behind. And they gradually looked at the, the sun um, still in the orbital plane of the Earth, but from different angles. So you could basically see what was coming around towards um, what was going to be rotating into view and see things that had rotated out of view from the perspective of the Earth. That's a really helpful capability. And I think um, extending that so that we could see the entire 360 degrees of the sun at all times, you know, having monitoring spacecraft so that we could see, for example, a huge magnetic active region on the backside of the sun that was about to rotate around and, and unleash a violent storm on us, that would be a very nice capability to have. Right. Okay. Um, so what did the Kepler teach us about, uh, I mentioned in the introduction that, that you had done a lot of comparative uh, astro-seismology, if you could define that term, and then um, comparative analysis of different solar-type stars, 
comparing the sun to uh, other solar type stars in the neighborhood. I don't know how many you, you observed with the Kepler, but what, what did we learn from that? And, uh, from an astrobiological point of view, um, can you talk about how the different spectral types and temperatures and, and main sequence lifetimes of a, of a given star would necessarily affect uh, the astrobiology around that star? Sure. So, I mean, it's worth remembering that Kepler was actually a, a survey mission to find planets like the Earth around stars like the Sun. And uh, before Kepler, we did not have the sensitivity to find planets that were much, much smaller than Jupiter or Neptune, right? Uh, and so the whole idea was to find out how common are planets of various sizes, finally using an instrument that could detect the smallest ones, smaller than the Earth. Uh, and so the first thing that Kepler taught us is that small planets, um, like the Earth, smaller than a, a few times the size of the Earth, they are the rule rather than the exception. Um, they are everywhere. We knew from previous ground-based studies that you know big planets like Jupiter were around maybe 1% of stars in the sky, but small planets are around like every star in the sky. So like I said, nature has a lot easier time making, uh, making small things than big things. It's just easier to put them together. Uh, and so Small planets like the Earth are everywhere, and so that immediately increases the chances for life. Um, so the other thing is that aside from the studies of exoplanet systems, Kepler taught us a bunch of new stuff about stars, uh, the stars themselves, because only about 3% of the Kepler targets, uh, you could detect the planets around them. They'd just be aligned in the right way. Those other 97% of the targets were great for understanding the evolution of stars. And so we use a technique called astroseismology. It's uh, analogous to the helioseismology that I mentioned, uh, where sound waves are generated near the surface and propagate down into the star and probe these regions where uh, hydrogen is turning into helium. And so you can determine the age of a star uh, from these, these sound waves uh, that cause brightness variations on the surface, small but possible to measure uh, with Kepler. Uh, and then combine that with the ability to measure the rotation from spots uh, rotating into view and out of view and other proxies of magnetic activity. And suddenly you have a, 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 a population of stars that allow you to, to describe how a star like the sun evolves over its 10 billion year lifetime. Uh, and there were some surprises there. So go ahead, uh, clue us in, <laughs> clue us in on, on a couple of the, the surprises. Well, so the main thing uh, that we've already discussed a little bit is is this midlife crisis. That basically um, the previous theory was that stars just rotate slower and slower over their lifetimes and get magnetically less active over time. It turns out that the rotation actually stops slowing down around the middle of a star's life. And it just levels off at a constant rotation rate uh, while the magnetic activity continues to decline. So basically, uh, during, during the first half of a star's life, rotation and magnetism are closely coupled. But in the second half, they decouple. And you, get, you maintain relatively rapid rotation while the magnetic activity just continues to decline. Cool. And we think this has to do with the rotation rate hitting uh, a sweet spot where... Uh, it's slow enough 
that the, the boiling motions on the surface no longer feel the, the Coriolis forces uh, that create twist that generates magnetic field. It's a little bit complex, but it's basically the same physics that causes hurricanes to curve in one direction in uh, the North Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. Could you explain what you mean by the Coriolis uh, forces? Yeah, that's the Coriolis forces is the reason why water swirls when it goes down your toilet, right? If you're on the equator, okay. there are no Coriolis forces and the water just goes straight down the toilet. All right. Okay. So uh, what uh, what did we learn, though, in general uh, from these uh, astro-seismology um, observations from Kepler? Uh, and I guess photometric uh, observations from Kepler as well, where you're just staring at a star over time. Uh, did Kepler do any of that? I know that uh, Hipparchos and the uh, Isis Hipparchos mission, and then now Gaia, the guy, the present Gaia mission, did 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 some photo- uh, photometry. So I guess what I'm really trying to uh, you know get at, and I think the listener is probably wondering as well, what, how does our sun stack up? against other solar-type stars. And uh, uh, what, what did you find and what do you think? Just basically, how do we stack up? Sure, sure. Okay, so, so what's generally meant uh, with when somebody says a solar-type star, they just mean a star that has a similar temperature uh, as the sun, similar temperature, similar composition. Uh, so things that you can define really with ground-based measurements. Um, when you say a solar analog, you're saying a star that represents either the future or the past of the sun. So it's a star that uh, is evolutionarily related to a star to the sun, for example. So it has the same mass uh, and the same composition and temperature, but it ha- may have a different age. So it represents the future or the past. A solar twin uh, is exactly, should be exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's a star that also shares the sun's age, right? It's, it, it represents the exact same evolutionary moment that the sun is currently experiencing. Um, so that's normally how people define those terms. So what Kepler taught us about stars like the sun is there is no reason to believe that the sun is different than other sun-like stars, but it taught us that the story that we had for how sun-like stars change over time is different than we thought it was, right? So it's not that the sun is peculiar compared to other stars. All stars like the sun go through this same evolution. It's just that that evolution is different than we thought it was before the Kepler mission. And and maybe you've explained this, but can you repeat that? How is it different in a, in a nutshell? Anyway. Yeah, in a nutshell, the previous theory that has existed since the 1970s is that um, that the rotation and magnetism of stars like the sun are intimately linked with each other, feed off of each other over time so that you get slowing rotation, decreasing magnetic activity over time. And everyone just assumed that this continues indefinitely uh, through the whole lifetime of a star like the sun. It turns out it doesn't. It That tightly coupled system decouples around the middle age, around the mid midlife of a star like the sun. And um, suddenly, uh, you once you decouple those properties, it changes the evolution uh, of rotation and magnetism. So just to make sure I have it clear, you're saying that, that over time, the decoupling of the rotation rate versus the magnetic activity of a given star 
or even our sun. Right. So what you have to understand is that the rotation being coupled to the magnetism is the mechanism that creates these powerful eruptions that we're experiencing still in the in the current um, sun. Like right? solar X flares or uh, that sort of exactly. thing? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, basically the, the rotation is the mechanism that winds up that magnetic field and creates a kind of magnetic tension that is then suddenly released eventually in a burst. Uh, and if you don't have the magnetism and the rotation being tightly coupled, uh, you basically lose that source of, of, of shear that the rotation provides. It's actually the differential rotation of the sun. The sun rotates more quickly at the equator than it does at the poles. And so this winds up the magnetic field over time and, and creates this potential for, for these violent storms. In the pre-interview, you said that, uh, that you were doing observations with TESS, as I mentioned in the intro, of the brightest stars um, currently. Now, w what is the rationale behind these observations? What do you hope to learn? And where are these stars? So Kepler gave us a great taste that there was something interesting to find in the evolution of stars like the sun. But the big weakness of Kepler is that it was looking relatively far away in the galaxy, several thousand light years away. And so the stars that Kepler observed that we got these great observations for are really, really faint. And so they're hard to characterize from ground-based observations. You need additional observations to know the temperature and the composition uh, and the space motions and the luminosity of the total energy output. Um, that's just really hard to do for faint stars. And so TESS as a mission is basically surveying the whole sky in the same way that Kepler did for this tiny patch of the summer Milky Way. Uh, and it's surveying the brightest stars in the sky rather than these extremely faint ones so that we have the opportunity to better characterize those stars. And when you say so, brighter stars, what spectral type are you talking about? Uh, these are the same types of stars, but they're just closer examples, right? And the rationale here is... Uh, so these are the solar, solar type stars? Yes, these, okay. are, these are stars like the sun and cooler stars, K-type stars and red dwarfs, right? Okay, so um, these are not the big giant O, B, and A spectral type stars that we see in Orion... Um, these are actually much, literally solar mass stars that you're looking at. I mean, TESS is also observing those, those very massive, big, bright stars like in Orion, but, um, they're relatively few. There's okay. not so many of those, right? And they're short lived, right? And they're short lived. Yeah. Yeah. But so, I mean, um, the rationale for TESS is you want to find, now that we know that, um, small planets like the earth are extremely common around stars like the sun, what you want to do is find the nearest examples of those systems around the brightest stars in the sky. So you have a chance to characterize those planets, right? And it, it's now broadly understood that if you want to characterize the planets better, you have to characterize the stars better as well. And so we're using both tools, both sets of tools to try to improve our understanding of, uh, of planetary systems and the stars that they are around. And where, and again, where are the bright stars? How far, how distant are they that you're observing with TESS? I mean, TESS is mostly looking within the nearest hundred light years, with, relatively okay. close compared okay. to Kepler a few thousand light years. Okay. But we don't know the ages or the masses, the, just the basic fundamental 
properties of those stars. And so it's hard to put together a picture of how stars evolve without knowing their ages, right? So, so that's the primary thing that TESS will do is give us ages for all the stars that we're trying to connect with these evolutionary threads. Okay. Um, and so is the fact that the, our sun is in the spiral arms and the disk of the galaxy in the so-called suburbs overemphasized in trying to make the argument that we are nothing special? I don't think so. I mean, the evolution of galaxies is complex, um, right? Uh, initially, galaxies are kind of a mess. Uh, you've got stars in orbits that, that go in all directions, not just in a nice disk the way they do in our galaxy. And some of those orbits cross the center of the galaxy, for example, where we know in our own galaxy there's a supermassive black hole. And so eventually those stars disappear because they get eaten by the black hole, right? Uh, and eventually you settle down into this, into this uh, remnant of a spiral galaxy where everything's in nice circular orbits. You don't have anything crossing the black hole in the center of the galaxy because everything that did has already been disrupted or ejected. Um, so, so there's something to it, right? I mean, the fact that we're here means that our star wasn't on an orbit that crossed the black hole at the center of the galaxy. So we can be thankful for that. <laughs> okay. Um, so let me just ask you, how well do you actually think we understand the sun's physics at this point? Are we half through, halfway there? I think we probably, I mean, it's like, it's like any hard problem. We probably know 90% of the physics that are relevant for the sun, but the 10% that we haven't really figured out completely yet is going to take us 90% of the effort, right? Right. And, and what should astronomers and solar physicists be doing to unravel the, the remaining mysteries? I think the main thing, um, I mean, solar physicists might give you a different answer to that question than I will. Um, I, I'm, I'm a stars guy, and I think the, the, uh, the thing that we really need to understand the sun in context is to study other stars like the sun and piece together that story, because really we have this fantastically detailed picture of the current state of the sun. And solar physicists might be tempted to, you know, probe those details in finer details still. Uh, but I think the big picture is actually worth thinking about. Where did the sun come from and where is it going in a large evolutionary sense over its whole lifetime, not just the hundreds of years that we've been around to watch carefully with satellites? Could you uh, kind of give us a breakdown, kind of paint a picture of us, uh, paint a picture for us rather, of uh, of how our our sun formed in the protostar and and uh, its early evolution, uh, how the the siblings might have evolved and how it they each kind of went their own way, and uh, and up till you know the planet formation, some uh, four point uh, what four billion years ago, so. Uh, can you kind of give us a, you know, paint us a picture of what it was like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the cartoon picture is that, um, you know, stars are formed in these nurseries of gas and dust, like the Orion Nebula, giant molecular clouds where uh, there's lots of material 
And then the idea is maybe a, a nearby supernova explosion creates a shock wave that creates turbulence in one of these clouds and starts the process of collapse into little fragments that turn into stars and planetary systems. And uh, when those blobs of gas and dust get small enough, they isolate from, from the nearby blobs. They start to, to rotate from the impact of that shock wave and flatten out into a disk. Um, and then the disk develops little swirls that eventually form into planets. Um, it's, it's still unknown uh, how important the, the dynamics of that system are relative to um, the importance of gravity attracting additional material over time. We, have, we still haven't worked out all the details of how planets form, but we're starting to get um, real pictures of planetary systems that are forming right now using um, radio telescopes. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the fantastic images from the Atacama uh, Large Millimeter Array. The Alba, but it's like yeah, a, absolutely, yeah. a radio telescope array in the Chilean desert, and that it's taking these incredible snapshots of protoplanetary disks with rings and little concentrations that appear to be planets forming in real time. Absolutely. I was just uh, in Santiago and I did a Forbes piece. I interviewed the uh, the project scientist uh, down there about, and he, they had some in, in, incredible shots. When I wrote my book, uh, uh, Distant Wanderers, uh, almost 20 years ago, they did not have that those kinds of images, and it's just amazing at the the breadth of the images that the Alma has has created. You, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, to, to an astronomer, when you when I first saw those images, I thought they were simulations, like computer simulations, because absolutely. we've seen those kind of simulations for decades now, and then suddenly we have observations that look just like those simulations. And of course, they converted the converted those from from the radio spectrum, which is a, a no small feat. But those are are actual images, as you point out. Um, yeah. So we're coming to the end of the episode, uh, and I want to thank you, but I just have two. Uh, last questions, which uh, most people, these are the kind of questions that are a little bit philosophical. Uh, so f feel free to speculate. A lot of uh, th th this is the, the bread and butter for people who listen to these kinds of podcasts. And uh, I couldn't end it without asking. So, is the evolution of life around a sun like star that finely attuned? Or do you think that life is going to be ubiquitous around longer-lived red dwarf stars? I mean, so to some extent, it depends on what you mean by life, right? Because those red dwarf stars are still very bad places to be in terms of radiation environment and well, let, stuff. Well, let's break, so, the, let's break the question down. Okay, uh, first, uh, microbial life, and then second, intelligent life. Yeah. So I think, I mean, if you look at the Earth um, and all of the extreme environments on the Earth, you can see life basically everywhere on Earth. The hot water vents at the bottom of the ocean, you know, Antarctica, wherever you look, uh, there is life that has adapted in some, in some way to, to fill the niche, right? And so I think that there's no reason to, uh, not to believe that that is also true of the universe at large. The numbers are staggering. There are so many. There are so many stars, and most of them have planets. And some of those planets are just going to be good enough for some kind of green slime to develop, at least, right? <laughs> okay. 
Um, but so, it, but if you're talking about technological civilizations, I mean, there was a there was a recent paper that suggested from Kepler's survey, you know, there are billions of planets like the Earth in you know habitable zone around their star in our galaxy alone, just because of the numbers. There's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, right? And that if you if you do the math, uh, something like a few dozen of those might have technological societies that are kind of analogous to us in the same uh, degree of development as we are, where they are potentially detectable. They could be using radio waves for communication. So we could we could find them by just watching their TV and hearing their radio signals, right? Right, right. Uh, but that's a, that's a small number, a few dozen in the galaxy. But it's not zero. I don't think it's zero by any means. But you mentioned, interestingly enough, I, I, I had mentioned this in a previous podcast, uh, the number of stars. So the number of stars, when I wrote my book, the the kind of the the, the Distant Wanderers book, uh, there was a, a number of 200 billion that was batted around. Uh, the further back you go, the more conservative the number. In other words, 100 billion used to be the paradigm in 1950. And then by the time I wrote my book, it was 200 billion. But then in conversations, by the time I'd done all my research, people were pushing up, pushing it up to 400 billion uh, within the galaxy. So what is the current paradigm on the number of stars in the galaxy? Because we know that star formation is still going on at a fast and furious rate, surprisingly, for a, a relatively quiescent galaxy. Yeah, I mean, the number is certainly in the hundreds of billions. I mean, astronomers don't care about anything beyond a factor of 10, right? So we got the order of magnitude, right? <laughs> is that hundreds right? of billions. Okay, and then, but on by the same token, the number of, of galaxies out there, I mean, classical also, spiral. Yeah, hundreds of billions of galaxies, each containing hundreds of billions of stars, right? The numbers are staggering. What is the likelihood that we're the only example of life in the universe? It's just... Totally improbable. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I think microbial life is going to be ubiquitous, uh, and I, I personally think that there is intelligent life out there. But, uh, you know, where is the nearest intelligent life? I could not give you an answer. Maybe not Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, and finally, what does our existence? Uh, did, did, do you have any? You want to venture any guesses? Uh, do you think there's intelligent life within a thousand light years? I don't. I don't have any any information. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any information. I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence have been, has been listening for radio signals for decades, and failed to find any convincing signals that repeat. Or, um, you would think, if life were that close, um, where it's easier to detect those radio signals, uh, you would think that they would have found it already. So. So, yeah, maybe I'm not so optimistic that life will be found, uh, intelligent life will be found that nearby. Um, but I would be very surprised if there are not. Um, uh, I, I totally believe that there are dozens of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. Okay. And then the last uh, final question is, is kind of a, you know, a, a variation of the previous, but there is a subtle distinction. So, what does our existence around this yellow dwarf star uh, mean? 
that we're here discussing all this, debating about whether there's other intelligent life and having this philosophical discussion, you know, what is existence, what is consciousness, yada, yada, yada. Um, what does that mean? When, because we're around the yellow dwarf star, but yet 75% of, uh, 70% at least, of the of stars in the universe are these red dwarfs. And most of the astrobiology papers are about whether or not life can exist around the red dwarfs. Dwarfs, And there are a lot of people who, who believe that because the red dwarfs are, you know, once they get through that, that um, uh, magnetic activity earlier on, uh, they live for, you know, much, much longer than our own star. So what are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, if there were some way to form planets around a red dwarf halfway through its life, then there might be hope for those planets, right? But if you develop a planet, it's got a nice atmosphere around a red dwarf, the early phases of that red dwarf virtually guarantee that at the distance where uh, liquid water could exist on that planet, that planet is just going to be pummeled with radiation and charged particles and will lose its atmosphere in a very short amount of time. All uh, planets around in the habitable zones of red dwarfs are so close to their star that the atmospheres of the planets are almost guaranteed to just be gone in a short amount of time. So that's why G dwarfs are much better. The, the habitable zone where liquid water can exist is far enough away that um, even those early phases are, are not so effective at stripping um, the atmosphere of planets that are, that are around it. And it doesn't last as long, that magnetically active period. Um, so, so somewhere in there, there's a, there's a sweet spot, uh, and it worked at least once. Um, and I think probably more than once, uh, around stars like the sun. So it's no mystery to you that, uh, we're here talking about life while orbiting a G dwarf star. No, I mean, there, there is something to be said for the fact that, uh, the only life that we currently know about is around a sun like star. Maybe that's a clue. Um, that that's where we should be looking and not too far away from that. Um, but it's interesting to know uh, how resilient life might be around these, in these other environments. I mean, that's an interesting question in and of itself. Um, but if we want to find uh, technological societies like ours, then probably um, a G dwarf star isn't a bad place to look. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Travis. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Again, Travis Metcalf, a senior research scientist at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much for, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. My pleasure. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.